If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Mars, should we go there? I'm Tom Osborne. I'm David Canerva. I'm Mary Saliba. And I'm Ken McCaleb. Welcome to U.S. World Report Radio, where each week our news team reviews what's happened in our country and around the world. Then we zero in on one topic for further discussion. Now here's Tom Osborne. These are the stories making headlines this week. Attorney General William Barr has told people close to him he's considering quitting his post after President Donald Trump wouldn't heed his warning to stop tweeting about Justice Department cases. The revelation came days after Barr took a public swipe at the president, saying in a television interview that Trump's tweets about Justice Department cases and staffers make it impossible for him to do his job. About 500 passengers left the cruise ship Diamond Princess at the end of a much-criticized two quarantine aboard the vessel docked in Japan that failed to stop the spread of the new virus among passengers and crew. The quarantine's flop was underlined as authorities announced 79 more cases, bringing the total on the ship to 621. Results were still pending for some other passengers and crew among the original 3,711 people on board. No candidate has the potential to upend the race for the Democratic presidential nomination more than Michael Bloomberg, the former New York mayor and billionaire. He spent more than 400 million dollars on advertising and has risen in national polling as a result. That has allowed him a place on the debate stage in Las Vegas after the Democratic National Committee dropped an additional requirement of reaching a certain number of donors. Since Bloomberg accepts no donations, polls were the only way he could qualify. Some voters seem ready to turn the pages and get more radical or switch from the status quo. This is the sentiment candidate Bernie Sanders is counting on to carry him to victory in the battle to take on President Donald Trump. He and his supporters have sought to allay concerns that he's a fringe candidate whose call for a political revolution would doom the party to another humiliating defeat. The strong showing in Iowa and New Hampshire gives him fresh evidence to make that case. Meanwhile, new polling shows former Vice President Biden with strength in battleground states like Michigan and Wisconsin and emerging ahead of Trump in national polls. Bloomberg took the debate stage this past week for the first time. Those who observed Neil Armstrong land on the moon all those years ago still remember every detail, where they were, who they were with, and how they felt. The moment the first astronauts land on Mars will be our moment to remember. A second reason is good old-fashioned curiosity. Where did Mars come from? Can it teach us about Earth's history? Is there life on Mars? These are just three of the hundreds of burning questions for scientists all over the world, which brings us to our story of the week. Mars, should we go there? Here's Dr. David Canervo, our resident historian and political scientist, to bring us the backstory. David? Thank you, Tom. Humans have probably had an interest in space travel since they first noticed the moon and stars. The idea of visiting other bodies in our solar system and beyond has stimulated the excitement of exploration in the minds of many people. The first human-made object to reach space occurred in 1949 with the launch of the bumper WAC rocket. That creation was used for research in the development of two-stage rockets. The first human-made Earth satellite was the Soviet Union Sputnik in 1957. 
Following that successful launch, the Soviet Union, now Russia, and the United States continued to launch satellites as they still do today. The first human spaceflight took place on April 12, 1961, when Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin made one orbit around the Earth. The Soviet spacecraft Luna 2 that landed on the moon in 1959 was the first landing of an Earth spacecraft on another body in outer space. Following successful Mercury and Gemini orbital space travel, the United States was the first to land people on the moon with Apollo 11 in June 1969. There have been six American moon landings carrying humans with the last in 1972. Now, almost 50 years later, NASA has set its sights on Mars, a much more difficult journey than flying to the moon. Ken? Thank you, David. Let's begin with this clip from the Tech Insider titled, Why NASA Hasn't Sent Humans to Mars Yet. We could have been on Mars 30 years ago. At the peak of the Apollo era in the early 70s, NASA was already planning its next step into the unknown. Its plans included building multiple space stations, continued trips to the moon, and its first crewed mission to Mars by the 1980s. Can you imagine watching astronauts walk on Mars the same time the Walkman came out? But of course, NASA never sent humans to Mars in the 80s. And here we are, years later, still dreaming of the possibility. But the reason isn't necessarily a matter of technology or innovation. It actually comes down to politics. As a government agency, NASA's goals are determined by the executive branch. Since its inception, NASA has served under 12 presidents, and it was clear near the start that not every president would support NASA equally. By the end of the Nixon administration in 1974, NASA's budget had plummeted from 4% of the federal budget to less than 1%. Fully funded Apollo missions 18 and 19 were abandoned along with Apollo 20. At the same time, Nixon pulled NASA's focus away from the moon and Mars and instead towards low Earth orbit. His parting gift was to sign into effect what would eventually become NASA's space shuttle program. But this was just the beginning. So what's happened throughout all of space history after the Apollo program was over was we had this start, stop, start, stop, cancel. So a president comes in, like President Bush comes in and says we're gonna to go to the moon, back to Mars, and the next president comes in and cancels that. And the next president sets their objective, and the next president comes in and cancels that. The agency's unable to sustain consistent funding long enough to do anything. It wasn't until the space shuttle program was nearing its end that a crewed mission to Mars was finally considered and funded by a U.S. president. George W. Bush in 2004 announced, We will give NASA a new focus and vision for future exploration. We will build new ships to carry man forward into the universe, to gain a new foothold on the moon. As a result, NASA's Constellation program was born. Never heard of it? That's because it was canceled a few years later. It aimed to send a crewed mission to the moon in 2020 and land the first humans on Mars by the 2030s. By the time Obama was sworn in, the Constellation program was behind schedule and over budget. One year later, Obama canceled 100% of the program's funding. All that has to change. And with the strategy I'm outlining today, it will. Obama shifted NASA's focus from sending people to the moon and Mars to ultimately 
just Mars. In the process, Obama asked Congress to increase NASA's budget by $6 billion over the next five years. As a result, NASA launched its Journey to Mars initiative in 2010, with the goal to send humans into orbit around Mars by the early 2030s. And until recently, NASA, for the most part, was on track. But then, this happened. President Trump has relaunched the National Space Council, and at the Council's inaugural meeting in October, we unanimously approved a recommendation to instruct NASA to return American astronauts to the moon, and from there to lay a foundation for a mission to Mars. NASA isn't new to this. Tom Osborne, Mars, moon, Mars, moon. Where is all this going? I mean, right now the Trump administration is launching something called the Space Force. Your comments? It seems that the moon is key to our conquering Mars and always has been. We got there first. Of course, sending a mission to Mars has always been the fantastic adventure. Imagine living on another planet millions of miles from Earth looking up at that sky with the knowledge that one of the stars is actually the planet you were born on, who can even envision the incredible feeling of being the first human in history to step out of that capsule and leave a footprint on Mars. Those who observed Neil Armstrong land on the moon all those years ago, we still remember every detail of where we were and, and, and who we were and with and, and how it felt. The moment the first astronauts land on Mars will be our moment to remember. But we've had a lot of setbacks, of course, as uh, Tech Insider explains. We could have done this some 30 years ago, and NASA planned multiple uh, space stations which would launch to Mars in the 1980s. 1969, it seems that President Nixon got cold feet after the uh, original uh, flight, and uh, he slashed the budget, as uh, our report suggested so that we've had an on-again, off-again problem, especially when it comes to one of the main challenges, which is securing funding and uh, securing congressional support and presenting a roadmap. Mars is one of the next steps, but we have yet to take the first step in making it concrete. Dr. Canervo, in August 1946, the U.S. government brought Warner von Braun, along with about 700 German rocket engineers and technicians, to the United States in an operation called Paperclip. Now, from my research, I've learned that uh, von Braun was very upset that we didn't go to Mars. In fact, that the uh, rocket he had designed for the Apollo mission, he actually intended to use to take us to Mars. What happened? The uh, country lost interest. Richard Nixon specifically lost interest and, and didn't provide the funding for it, as has been mentioned. And, and beyond that, I think there was a probably a lag in technology that people didn't have quite the same fervor for the uh, space race to Mars that uh, Von Braun and, and others of his uh, team had as he did. You're listening to U.S. World Report Radio. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Back to U.S. World Report Radio with Tom Osborne, David Canervo, Mary Saliba, and Ken McCaleb. Well now, from National Geographic, we bring you, Is Mars the Earth's 
Planet B. The story of Mars began about 4.5 billion years ago when gas and dust swirled together to form the fourth planet from the Sun. Mars is the second smallest planet in the solar system with a diameter just shy of the width of Africa. In fact, its entire surface area is similar to that of all of Earth's continents combined. Much like its terrestrial cousin, Mars is dense and has a rocky composition. At the center of the planet is a core made of iron, nickel, and sulfur, which may have created a protective magnetic field during Mars's earlier years. Enveloping the core is a rocky mantle made of silicate minerals and a crust rich in iron. These iron minerals react with the trace amounts of oxygen in Mars's atmosphere and rusts, giving the planet its signature reddish hue. While its blood-like appearance inspired the ancient Romans to name Mars after their god of war, the planet's rusty color could be considered symbolic of the planet's prime days long past. Today, Mars is dry, desolate, and cold, with temperatures dropping as low as negative 225 degrees Fahrenheit. But billions of years ago, the planet was much warmer, more geologically active, and had a watery surface. Lake beds and river valleys snake along the face of Mars, indicating that liquid water was, for a time, present. Volcanoes, such as Olympus Mons, the largest volcano in the solar system at three times the height of Mount Everest, once erupted lava. But by about 50 million years ago, soon after Earth's dinosaurs died out, Mars's volcanoes also went extinct. Water on the red planet still exists today, but mostly in the form of polar ice caps. Because of factors such as the presence of water, some scientists believe life may have existed on the red planet and may exist again. Since the 1960s, space programs from around the world have launched missions to Mars in attempts to understand the planet's past, present, and potential for sustaining life. Life on another planet may well be out of reach for the near future. But if any planet can give us hope, Mars may hold the key to the survival of humanity. Dr. Kinerville, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon used to refer to Earth, and he would say, there is no planet B. But now this roll-in suggests that Mars may become Earth's planet B. Your thoughts on that? The description of Mars certainly presents us with a, a very hostile environment. Uh, very little water except at the poles. Uh, it's dry. It's uh, very cold. And it seems to me it's, it's a kind of hostile environment that it's going to be very difficult to tame. Certainly we can try to build uh, communities there with uh, various materials over time, but it's going to take us, I think, a long time to do that. And the question is, is it uh, the type of environment that's going to be attractive to people? Do we see people really wanting to leave Earth and the, the beauty that we have here 
for for that kind of uh, environment. There may be some uh, explorers and very tough, rugged individuals who want to do that. But I, again, I don't know that that's going to be a very attractive place for people to go. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Mars is, of course, uh, the fact that it has gone through climate change. There are scientists who believe that uh, studying Mars might be a way of learning more about our own planet, how we developed as a planet, and where we may be going. Question is, uh, are we likely to end up like Mars ourselves on Earth a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand years from now? And of course, we don't know. But one of the things we are concerned about, of course, is, is climate change on this planet now. And perhaps Mars can be somewhat instructive in that regard. Tom, as small as Mars is and how desolate it is, what's the appeal of going there? I mean, don't we have enough iron here on Earth? Mars is the most scientifically interesting location in our solar system. And uh, the debate actually ranges along whether it should be a robotic exploration or whether humanity should be the first to embark on the planet. Robotic exploration of Mars over the past 50 plus years has provided us with a wealth of information of why we should do that. Discoveries, uh, most experts agree, will probably take human explorers to determine whether there ever was or even still is life on Mars and to conduct many of the scientific investigations that will make the, the trip worthwhile. It's also a matter of inspiration and innovation. Space exploration is a well-known driver of technology and innovation that will help us here on Earth. And uh, returning to the moon after 50 years is unlikely to require these major advancements as we would with Mars. I think, as David pointed out, another important point is that humans to Mars is affordable and achievable. NASA will not require a large increase in its budget and uh, there's no doubt that Mars will be challenging, but after 55 years of human spaceflight and studying Mars, 16 years of permanent presence aboard the International Space Station, there's a massive expansion of its capabilities. And we're far more ready to send humans to Mars than the nation was when President John F. Kennedy committed the U.S. to landing humans on the moon. Well, uh, David, at uh, minus 225 degrees Fahrenheit, won't uh, most of the mechanical tools that we bring to Mars, won't they freeze up? And, and I mean, what are some of the challenges working in that temperature? Well, that that is a challenge, certainly. And it's a matter of then developing tools which are modified to work in that kind of environment. Somehow they'd have to be perhaps heated, some sort of special lubrication, in order to allow them to work at that kind of extreme temperature. Tom, there was an experiment in Hawaii where we put, I think it was a dozen people together for 500 days, and they were put in a habitat that they couldn't uh, come out of. Uh, How successful was that? Well, habitat is the key, of course, Ken, and um, that was not a very successful operation, except probably only in the sense that it showed um, what are the pitfalls. The, the group actually did not get along very well. There were several breaches of the installation, and uh, basically they had to give up the, uh, the operation in total. 
But it was, a, it was an opportunity to see how important the habitat is. And when we look at Mars exploration, we're talking about maybe perhaps circling the planet, uh, living on a, a habitat that is uh, not necessarily landed, but one that can observe various cycles and uh, operations that uh, climate on Mars and perhaps uh, attempt with future technology to land. So it's not an all or nothing operation. We can look to the future for Mars, uh, but we don't necessarily have to put our feet there. Dr. Canerville, with the recent outbreak of the coronavirus, uh, families that were kept on board uh, cruise ships were told to stay in their rooms. We're talking uh, five months, eight months, depending on the rocket speed, just to get to Mars. How are we going to manage to do that in such close quarters, uh, similar to a submarine? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a real problem. How are we going to get along? How are we going to maintain uh, our, our sanity, literally, in a situation where we have a very, very limited amount of movement? You're listening to U.S. World Report Radio with Tom Osborne, Dr. David Canervo, Mary Saliva, and Ken McCaleb. But we'll be back after these short messages. Welcome back to U.S. World Report Radio. I'm David Canervo, along with Ken McCaleb, Tom Osborne, and Mary Saliba. Today's topic is Mars. Should we go there? Ken? Thank you, David. Our next clip is from Primal Space, and it's titled, What Elon Plans to Do When SpaceX Gets to Mars. In the year 2024, SpaceX aims to send the first humans to Mars, 55 years after man first set foot on the moon. While the Apollo missions only involved short stays on the moon, SpaceX aims to make Mars a permanent home for humans. For the first group of astronauts heading to Mars, the journey is expected to take around five months. But what will they do when they get there? Before the first astronauts ever set foot on the surface of Mars, they will need to have the essentials, like water and power, already set up before they get there. SpaceX plans to achieve this in 2022 by sending two BFRs on uncrewed missions, carrying important equipment such as a large array of solar panels and a mining system. This mining system will be the basis of SpaceX's automated propellant plant which they aim to expand with every new mission that heads to Mars. This propellant plant will process the large supplies of CO2 and water found on Mars by using the Sabatier process to make oxygen and methane, which will then be liquefied and used as fuel to return the astronauts back to Earth. If this mission is successful in setting up the foundations for a Mars colony, SpaceX will be on course for sending the first humans to Mars in 2024. This mission will consist of two cargo ships and two crewed ships, carrying around six to eight astronauts each. The astronauts could be staying on Mars anywhere between a few months or a couple of years while they continue to set up the propellant plant. One of the most important things the astronauts will have to do when they arrive is set up a base. Others have suggested that the initial base on Mars should be built underground 
to protect the astronauts from the intense radiation and extreme weather experienced on Mars. It's possible that Elon Musk's boring company could be used to dig tunnels and create underground habitats for astronauts to live on Mars. Then there is the question of how astronauts will get their food. The first astronauts on Mars will take a two-year supply of vacuum-sealed packets of food, which are light and compact, just like the ones used on the ISS. The astronauts won't be relying on Mars-grown food. However, it's likely that they will bring a greenhouse on their first mission to experiment with growing food and possibly supplementing their food with freshly grown produce. Tom, what kind of vehicles will provide transportation once on the surface? Well, they'll have the rovers, of course, and some of those rovers have been sent there already and have produced some information. There's a, a lot of um, a preparation being made right now in terms of selecting astronauts and creating the rovers that are needed. There is some speculation that Elon Musk, for example, as mentioned in our rolling, is um, somewhat reluctant uh, on the project. But I think it's really, uh, he's critical, of course, in terms of the propulsion rockets and getting us there and establishing the infrastructure that will keep those going. But um, he seems to be hesitant about uh, the, the fact that we should probably look for something elsewhere to, uh, to settle, that Mars is really not a good place for living long term. And Probably, uh, as the Roland suggested, uh, humans might have to live underground, and Musk has thoughts about that project. Uh, this is due to the radiation problem, and uh, there's no real natural protection in such a thin atmosphere. Some also say that uh, the planet Titan should be considered. It's a moon slightly bigger than our own, and it orbits Saturn. It's unique and solid surface is an icy moon. Its atmosphere is nitrogen, about 2% methane as well. But um, humans will need to make oxygen. There's none there, and there's plenty of frozen water in the subsurface. Musk should be able to develop a colony on Titan to prepare for Mars. That's one of the major suggestions. Uh, Dr. Kenerva, there is currently a, a series on Netflix produced by National Geographic called Mars. What it did, it, it compared where we are today, where we think we'll be in 2035. Now, my question to you is, is Elon being a little over-exuberant about his timetable? He's talking about launching supply ships two years from now. Your thoughts? Well, I think he may be a little uh, over-exuberant. He, uh, I think, has a tendency to do that. If you were to go back to what he had said uh, five or 10 years ago, about his own um, SpaceX program. Uh, my sense is that the SpaceX program is not as far along today as his uh, initial plan had been for it. So I think that's just part of who he is. He gets very excited about these things and perhaps overestimates the uh, speed at which the uh, plans can be accomplished. Uh, I find this kind of an exciting time, really, in which there might be some competition, but also cooperation uh, among these different companies. You're listening to U.S. World Report Radio. We're going to take a short break, so stay with us. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to U.S. World Report Radio. I'm Tom Osborne, and today's program is titled, Mars, Should We Go There? Ken? Thank you, Tom. 
And now from NASA, in 2024, we're returning to the moon. Fifty years ago, we pioneered a path to the moon. The trail we blazed cut through the fictions of science and showed us all what was possible. Today, our calling to explore is even greater. To go farther, we must be able to sustain missions of greater distance and duration. We must use the resources we find at our destinations. We must overcome radiation, isolation, gravity, and extreme environments like never before. These are the challenges we face to push the bounds of humanity. We're going to the moon to stay by 2024, and this is how. This all starts with the ability to get larger, heavier payloads off-planet and beyond Earth's gravity. For this, we design an entirely new rocket. The Space Launch System. SLS will be the most powerful rocket ever developed. And with components in production. And more in testing. This system is capable of being the catalyst for deep space missions. We need a capsule that can support humans from launch through deep space and return safely back to Earth. For this, we've built Orion. This is NASA's next generation human space capsule. Using data from lunar orbiters that continue to reveal the moon's hazards and resources, we're currently developing an entirely new approach to landing and operating on the moon. Using our commercial partners to deliver science instruments and robotics to the surface, we are paving the way for human missions in 2024. Our charge is to go quickly and to stay to press our collective efforts forward with a fervor that will see us return to the moon in a manner that is wholly different than 50 years ago. We want lunar landers that are reusable, that can land anywhere on the lunar surface. The simplest way to do so is to give them a platform in orbit around the moon from which to transition. An orbiting platform to host deep space experiments and be a waypoint for human capsules. We call this lunar outpost Gateway. The beauty of the gateway is that it can be moved between orbits. It will balance between the Earth and Moon's gravity. In a position that is ideal for launching even deeper space missions. In 2009, we learned that the Moon contains millions of tons of water ice. This ice can be extracted and purified for water. It can be separated in oxygen for breathing or hydrogen for rocket fuel. The Moon is quite uniquely suited to prepare us and propel us to Mars and beyond. This is what we're building. This is what we're training for. This we can replicate throughout the solar system. This is the next chapter of human space exploration. Humans are the most fragile element of this entire endeavor, and yet we go for humanity. We go to the moon and onto Mars to seek knowledge and understanding and to share it with all. We go knowing our efforts will create opportunities that cannot be foreseen. We go because we are destined to explore and see it with our own eyes. We turn towards the moon now, not as a conclusion, but as preparation, as a checkpoint toward all that lies beyond. Our greatest adventures remain ahead of us. We are going. We're going. We are going. We are going. We're going. David, I guess we're going. Well, uh, we'll see whether we're going, depending <laughs> on, I think, who the next president is going to be. Uh, I think that will have an impact. 
but certainly this plan to go to the moon, I think, speaks of, to the space program's history of incrementalism. We have traditionally taken one small step at a time, moving to eventual landing on moon. And now this uh, creation of a community on the moon, which will serve as a gateway to Mars, is, uh, I think, indicative of, of that history and uh, tradition. It's going to be uh, more expensive to do it this way because we'll be building not only then a community on Mars eventually, but one on the moon as well and having to sustain both of them. So this will add to the cost. And I think that's going to be a problem for the future. If uh, uh, someone like uh, Bernie Sanders is uh, elected president, does that mean that uh, he is going to be willing to spend billions and billions of dollars on this kind of project rather than putting his money into uh, or the nation's money into uh, health care? So I, I think uh, this is all very problematic for the uh, foreseeable future. Uh, again, as we have seen in the past, on and off, on and off, depending on the president, I think that kind of on and off pattern will continue. Tom, the Orion spacecraft was originally designed to take us to Mars. What happened? Basically, we had to, uh, once again, discuss funding and um, support in the Congress. And there were many uh, discussions about what should be first, the moon or Mars. And it seems now that the, so to speak, stars are lining up for Mars, but moon is the first stop. And another factor that is uh, involved in all of this is that all of this hardware that's needed for a Mars mission, albeit first to the moon, still needs to be designed and built and is based and tested extensively. And the technology exists, but it needs to, all the equipment needs to be developed. And this is um, usually done by third party suppliers. So the mission is uh, very much in the hands of many, many folks. And um, these uh, various modules that we're talking about that will be prepared uh, perhaps uh, first uh, to the moon, carrying things like the life support units that generate energy and water and breathable air and then carrying the supply with food and solar panels. And then there are living units that are outfitted and uh, they also um, are able to carry humans to the surface of Mars. There will be two rovers uh, that will be sent to Mars to set up the outposts before the humans arrive. David, the uh, gateway commentary that we just listened to, they talked about water on the surface of the moon. Where is it? Well, I'm not sure myself. It sounded like they said it was uh, perhaps underground so that they would somehow have to, to drill down to reach it. Uh, and that it's probably in the form of, of ice, certainly, given the temperatures there. So uh, that's the best that I can I can determine, because I had not really uh, considered there being water there uh, before. Tom, are we assuming too much about other worlds, uh, the way that we're going about our space program? Well, nobody knows the answer to that question, of course, but um, certainly they can speculate. What we know about the universe that surrounds us indicates that uh, we better be prepared, not only financially, but also prepared to risk, to take those risks. You're listening to U.S. World Report Radio. We're going to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to hear from our staff editorialist, Mary Saliba.
Welcome back to U.S. World Report Radio, and this is our show summary segment where we get a chance to hear from our staff editorialist, Mary Saliba. Mary. Thanks, Ken. As species vanish into extinction, and the too long ignored global warming is now about to cause us to be evicted from our home, we are gathered in the twilight awaiting our turn as we share the last of Earth's riches. Scientists and philosophers have long looked into the universe in exploration and fascination and possibilities for our own survival. Venus, the moon, Titan, which one might keep us safe? Science has no ego, no political interest, no fee. It just is. Knowledge and possibilities waiting for the discoverers. But research in developing that knowledge does. And as we venture deeper into the thundering planet, burning and melting, overpopulated and underfed, it's the politicians and ego and money who will decide our fate. We can say we live in a democracy, we can believe we are free. But when self-interested leaders choose who lives and dies and where, how free are we as humans, never mind Americans? Perhaps the miraculous and terrible truth is that in this critical moment, solutions in science could save human beings. But decisions about who and what we save or explore are in the hands of those in power. This administration has made a determined effort to undermine the scientific community and its findings. So why now? Why Mars? The humanitarian crises we are facing are nowhere near the billionaire boys as they talk about big toys to roam the moon and Mars, to fly through space and win the race. You can almost see the picture on Life magazine of the first man on Mars. We would spend $100 billion to try out a colony on Mars for that photo, the winner of Mars. But who are we to just claim a planet like the suburbs of Earth, bringing our bacteria and freeze-dried food in SUVs like a band of entitled homesteaders? What if there is life on Mars and we destroy it with ours? We abandoned our allied troops in Syria. Who wants to be stranded on Mars? Exploring and expanding our opportunities to survive are vital. Being the winner of the Mars landing is a poster for the trophy room. Who will get to survive? Will it be here? Will it be on Mars? Mars ain't no kind of place to raise your kids. In fact, it's cold as hell. And there's no one there to raise them if you did. This has been Mary Saliba for U.S. World Report Radio. Thank you, Mary. Well, David, here we are again at the end of our show. Any final thoughts regarding going to Mars? Well, Ken, I hope that as we plan to go to Mars, that we do a good job of taking care of where we are and see what we can do to stop climate change in the meantime. Thank you all for listening and hope you'll tune in next week. Goodbye. And Tom Osborne, what have we learned from examining our space program of yesteryear looking forward to tomorrow. Well, when President Kennedy announced America's intention to land on the moon, the computer age was just emerging in, in, in earnest. Today's technology is developing at a rapid speed, faster than we can comprehend it. If we launch a mission to Mars, we'll need ever more expensive visions of the world that we must create to get there. And that's a good thing. That's all the time we have this week. Our thanks to Ken McCaleb, our executive producer and moderator, Dr. David Canervo, our resident historian and political scientist, and Mary Saliba, our editorialist. Please take time to visit our website, usworldreport.org, and be sure to order our book, Genocide for Beginners, at amazon.com. I'm Tom Osborne. Thanks for listening. 
See you next Where's week. Where's Tom Osborne? Oh, well, where's Tom Osborne? Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.